Section 11 of the Heptameron of the Tales of Margaret, Queen of Navarre, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Heptameron of the Tales of Margaret, Queen of Navarre, Volume 1, by Margaret of Navarre. Translated by George Sainsbury. Day 1, Tale 3. Footnote. This story is historical. The events occurred at Naples, circa 1450. End footnote. I have often desired, ladies, to be a sharer in the good fortune of the man whose story I am about to relate to you. You must know that in the time of King Alfonso, whose lust was the sceptre of his kingdom, there lived in the town of Naples a gentleman so honourable, comely, and pleasant that his perfections induced an old gentleman to give him his daughter in marriage. She vied with her husband in grace and comeliness, and there was great love between them, until a certain day in carnival time, when the king went masked from house to house. All strove to give him the best welcome they could, but when he came to this gentleman's house he was entertained better than anywhere else, what with sweetmeats and singers and music and further the fairest woman that, to his thinking, he had ever seen. At the end of the feast she sang a song with her husband in so graceful a fashion that she seemed more beautiful than ever. The king, perceiving so many perfections united in one person, was not over-pleased at the gentle harmony between the husband and wife, and deliberated how he might destroy it. The chief difficulty he met with was in the great affection which he observed existed between them, and on this account he hid his passion in his heart as deeply as he could. To relieve it in some measure, he gave many entertainments to the lords and ladies of Naples, and at these the gentleman and his wife were not forgotten. Now, inasmuch as men willingly believe what they desire, it seemed to the king that the glances of this lady gave him fair promise of future happiness, if only she were not restrained by her husband's presence. Accordingly, that he might learn whether his surmise was true, the king entrusted a commission to the husband, and sent him on a journey to Rome for a fortnight or three weeks. As soon as the gentleman was gone, his wife, who had never before been separated from him, was in great distress. But the king comforted her as often as he was able, with gentle persuasions and presents, so that at last she was not only consoled, but well pleased with her husband's absence. Before the three weeks were over, at the end of which he was to be home again, she had come to be so deeply in love with the king that her husband's return was no less displeasing to her than his departure had been. Not wishing to be deprived of the king's society, she agreed with him that whenever her husband went to his country house she would give him notice of it. He might then visit her in safety, and with such secrecy that her honour, which she regarded more than her conscience, would not suffer. Having this hope, the lady continued a very cheerful mind, and when her husband arrived she welcomed him so heartily that, even had he been told that the king had sought her in his absence, he would have had no suspicion. In course of time, however, the flame that is so difficult of concealment began to show itself, and the husband, having a strong inkling of the truth, kept good watch, by which means he was well-nigh convinced. 
Nevertheless, as he feared that the man who wronged him would treat him still worse if he appeared to notice it, he resolved to dissemble, holding it better to live in trouble than to risk his life for a woman who had ceased to love him. In his vexation of spirit, however, he resolved, if he could, to retort upon the king, and knowing that women, especially such as are of lofty and honourable minds, are more moved by resentment than by love, he made bold one day, while speaking with the queen, to tell her that it moved his pity to see her so little loved by the king. The queen, who had heard of the affection that existed between the king and the gentleman's wife, replied, "'I cannot have both honour and pleasure together. I well know that I have the honour, whilst another has the pleasure, and in the same way she who has the pleasure has not the honour that is mine.' Thereupon the gentleman, who understood full well at whom these words were aimed, replied, "'Madam, honour is inborn with you, for your lineage is such that no title, whether of queen or empress, could be an increase of nobility. Yet your beauty, grace, and virtue are well deserving of pleasure, and she who robs you of what is yours does a greater wrong to herself than to you.' seeing that for a glory which is turned to her shame, she loses as much pleasure as you or any lady in the realm could enjoy. I can truly tell you, madam, that were the king to lay aside his crown, he would not possess any advantage over me in satisfying a lady. Nay, I am sure that to content one so worthy as yourself, he would indeed be pleased to change his temperament for mine." The queen laughed and replied, "'The king may be of a less vigorous temperament than you, yet the love he bears me contents me well, and I prefer it to any other.' "'Madam,' said the gentleman, "'if that were so, I should have no pity for you. I feel sure that you would be well pleased if the like of your own virtuous love were found in the king's heart. But God has withheld this from you, in order that, not finding what you desire in your husband, you may not make him your god on earth. I confess to you, said the queen, that the love I bear him is so great that the like could not be found in any other heart but mine. Pardon me, madam, said the gentleman, you have not fathomed the love of every heart. I will be so bold as to tell you that you are loved by one whose love is so great and measureless that your own is as nothing beside it. The more he perceives that the king's love fails you, the more does his own wax and increase, in such wise that, were it your pleasure, ye might be recompensed for all you have lost. The queen began to perceive, both from these words and from the gentleman's countenance, that what he said came from the death of his heart. She remembered also that for a long time he had so zealously sought to do her service that he had fallen into sadness. She had hitherto deemed this to be on account of his wife, but now she was firmly of belief that it was for love of herself. Moreover, the very quality of love which compels itself to be recognized when it is unfeigned made her feel certain of what had been hidden from every one. As she looked at the gentleman, who was far more worthy of being loved than her husband, she reflected that he was forsaken by his wife, as she herself was by the king, and then, beset by vexation and jealousy against her husband, as well as moved by the love of the gentleman, she began with sighs and tearful eyes to say, Ah, me! Shall revenge prevail with me, where love has been of no avail? 
The gentleman, who understood what these words meant, replied, "'Vengeance, madam, is sweet when in place of slaying an enemy it gives life to a true lover. Methinks it is time that truth should cause you to abandon the foolish love you bear to one who loves you not, and that a just and reasonable love should banish fear, which cannot dwell in a noble and virtuous heart. Come, madam, let us set aside the greatness of your station, and consider that, of all men and women in the world, we are the most deceived, betrayed, and bemocked by those whom we have most truly loved. Let us avenge ourselves, madam, not so much to requite them in the way they deserve, as to satisfy that love which, for my own part, I cannot continue to endure and live. And I think that, unless your heart be harder than flint or diamond, you cannot but feel some spark from the fires which only increase the more I seek to conceal them. If pity for me, who am dying of love for you, does not move you to love me, at least pity for yourself should do so. You are so perfect that you deserve to win the heart of every honourable man in the world, yet you are contempt and forsaken by him for whose sake you have scorned all others. On hearing these words, the queen was so greatly moved that, for fear of showing in her countenance the trouble of her mind, she took the gentleman's arm and went forth into a garden that was close to her apartment. There she walked to and fro for a long time without being able to say a word to him. The gentleman saw that she was half one, and when they were at the end of the path, where none could see them, he made a very full declaration of the love which he had so long hidden from her. They found that they were of one mind in the matter, and enacted the vengeance which they were no longer able to forego. Moreover, they there agreed that whenever the husband went into the country, and the king left the castle to visit the wife in the town, the gentleman should always return and come to the castle to see the queen. Thus, the deceivers being themselves deceived, all four would share in the pleasures that two of them had thought to keep to themselves. When the agreement had been made, the queen returned to her apartment, and the gentleman to his house, both being so well pleased that they had forgotten all their former troubles. The jealousy they had previously felt at the king's visits to the lady was now changed to desire, so that the gentleman went oftener than usual to his house in the country, which was only half a league distant. As soon as the king was advised of his departure, he never failed to go and see the lady, and the gentleman, when night was come, betook himself to the castle to the queen, where he did duty as the king's lieutenant, and so secretly that none ever discovered it. This manner of life lasted for a long time, but as the king was a person of public condition, he could not conceal his love sufficiently well to prevent it from coming at length to the knowledge of every one, and all honourable people felt great pity for the gentleman, though diverse malicious youths were wont to deride him by making horns at him behind his back. But he knew of their derision, and it gave him great pleasure so that he came to think as highly of his horns as of the king's crown. One day, however, the king and the gentleman's wife, noticing a stag's head that was set up in the gentleman's house, could not refrain in his presence from laughing and saying that the head was suited to the house. Soon afterwards the gentleman, who was no less spirited than the king, caused the following words to be written over the stag's head. Io porto le corna, chiascun lo vede. 
Matalle porta che no lo crede. Footnote. All men may see the horns I've got, but one wears horns and knows it not. End footnote. When the king came again to the house, he observed these lines newly written, and inquired their meaning of the gentleman, who said, If the king's secret be hidden from the subject, it is not fitting that the subject's secret should be revealed to the king. Be content with knowing that those who wear horns do not always have their caps raised from their heads. Some horns are so soft that they never uncap one, and especially are they light to him who thinks he has them not. The king perceived by these words that the gentleman knew something of his own behaviour, but he never had any suspicion of the love between him and the queen, for the more pleased the latter was with the life led by her husband, the more did she feign to be distressed by it. And so, on either side, they lived in this love, until at last old age took them in hand. Here, ladies, is a story by which you may be guided, for, as I willingly confess, it shows you that when your husbands give you buck's horns, you can give them stag's horns in return. I'm quite sure, Saffredant, began Anna Sweet, laughing, that if you still love as ardently as you were formerly wont to do, you would submit to horns as big as oak trees, if only you might repay them as you pleased. However, now that your hair is growing grey, it is time to leave your desires in peace. Fair lady, said Saffredon, though I be robbed of hope by the woman I love, and of ardour by old age, yet it lies not in my power to weaken my inclination. Since you have rebuked me for so honourable a desire, I give you my vote for the telling of the fourth tale, that we may see whether you can bring forward some example to refute me. During this converse, one of the ladies fell to laughing heartily, knowing that she who took Saffredon's words to herself was not so loved by him that he would have suffered horns, shame or wrong for her sake. When Saffredon perceived that the lady who laughed understood him, he was well satisfied and became silent, so that Anna Sweet might begin, which she did as follows. In order, ladies, that Saffredon and the rest of the company may know that all ladies are not like the queen he has spoken of, and that all foolhardy and venturesome men do not compass their ends, I will tell you a story in which I will acquaint you with the opinion of a lady who deemed the vexation of failure in love to be harder of endurance than death itself. However, I shall give no names, because the events are so fresh in people's minds that I should fear to offend some who are near of kin. End of section 11